0: Hello and welcome to the Beethoven Files, episode 44. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about two piano sonatas completed in 1809, beginning with the unusual piano sonata number 24 in F sharp major, opus 78. This work was composed for his young piano student, Therese Malfatti, of whom Beethoven was very fond perhaps considerably more than fond, although there isn't widespread agreement about that. At any rate, some commentators have suggested that the unusual key, six sharps, Beethoven never employed it again in a sonata, was meant as a gentle tease, perhaps for a pianist who preferred to stay away from the more exotic keys. If the piece was intended as a gesture of courtship, it failed in that regard, with Beethoven eventually discouraged from visiting the Malfatti household other than in his capacity of a musician. But the sonata in F sharp major certainly did not fail as a composition. Early biographer Thayer quotes Beethoven to the effect that the work was generally underappreciated, and according to Karl Czerny, Beethoven himself singled out this sonata and the Appassionata sonata as his favorites of the sonatas written to that point. This sonata has only two movements, lacking a slow movement, which is unusual in itself, and the first movement begins with an introduction, which is also a bit unusual. Normally, a slow introduction begins by establishing the key with an opening tonic chord, and then, as you've seen in several earlier works, may wander around a bit tonally, hinting at different keys, but usually the introduction concludes on a solid dominant chord in preparation for launching into the exposition where the tonic key is re established. But in this case things are a little different. Here's the introduction in two four time marked Adagio Cantabile, measures one through four. As you heard, the melody begins on the fifth scale degree and moves up the scale, with a few ornamental twists and turns along the way, this over a repeated pedal on the tonic note of F sharp, played in half note octaves in the left hand. Even though the block chords in the right hand do suggest a couple of chromatic chords in passing, it's clear that we begin solidly on the tonic chord and conclude in the same place with a fermata not on a dominant chord, to prepare us for a launch into the exposition, which we would normally expect. So this brief introduction seems to be operating almost more like an independent entity than a typical introduction, and is, as such, an unusual feature of the movement. The exposition, in common time in Mark Allegro Manontropo, begins on the third scale degree, A-sharp, and moves up a third by means of a dotted eighth, sixteenth note figure. In the introduction you just heard, there was also a dotted eighth, sixteenth note figure. It appeared on the second beat of the first measure and also ascended, although the context was rather different, and I'm not sure most listeners would necessarily hear much of a connection between the two. Here are the first four bars of the first subject, the melody carried by the right hand, generally in block chords and octaves, with the left hand providing mostly broken chord patterns to accompany it. It's obviously a distinctive theme. It begins with the stepwise motion I just referred to, but as you heard, it unfolds with a great number of melodic leaps. The first full measure features a descending fifth, but from that point on, to the end of bar four, we also hear three ascending leaps of a fourth, although the phrase ends with three descending steps, taking us back to the fifth scale degree. But it's only four measures long. That would be a pretty short first subject in a form movement at this point in history. And yet what comes immediately after this theme doesn't seem to have much to do with it. The texture thins down initially to a single line with 4 or 5 note 16th note motives being tossed back and forth between right hand and left hand. The motive that dominates is this one, characterized by an ascending step back down to the original note and then down a third. Here's a simplified example. After a couple of bars, the sixteenth note motives yield for a while two triplets, and then a repeated cadence on F-sharp major eight measures later. Here is the actual passage. This new idea obviously contrasts sharply with the first four bars of the first subject, and a listener might reasonably conclude that it's the beginning of the modulatory transition if it weren't for the fact that that would make the first subject only four bars long, and because we never really modulate. We stay in F-sharp major for the time being. So that suggests that we're probably going to hear this new section even though it doesn't seem to have much to do with the first four-bar phrase, as simply the second part of the first subject, all the way until measure 16, where we hear a pair of cadences on F-sharp major. I should mention, however, that Charles Rosen, in his Companion to the Beethoven Sonatas, makes the point that the two ideas, from the first four bars and from the next eight, really are related to one another, the second being a highly decorated and somewhat abstracted version of the first based on the overall shape of the two themes. This, Rosen suggests, represents a somewhat different approach than we usually see with Beethoven, one that is more improvisatory and less motivic-based. At any rate, having arrived at the end of the first subject, we expect to find a modulatory transition to the key of the dominant for the second subject. And that's exactly what we do find, after the final cadence on F sharp major and a last glimpse of the motive appearing first in measure 5 to lead us in. The transition is soon marked by repeated sixteenth note patterns in the right hand and block chord quarter notes in the left hand. The harmony begins gently enough, but repeated chromatic chords soon pull us away from the original key, including a German sixth chord, which leads the way to a trill dominant seventh chord in the new key of the dominant. Here is that transition. The second subject in C-sharp major begins with four bars of undulating eighth note triplets employing three different patterns, the right hand more triadic-based and the left repeating a shorter motive in different octaves. Here is the four-bar theme marked piano and dolce ending in the fifth bar on a dominant seventh. What follows is seven bars which, once again, doesn't seem at first to have much to do with the initial four-bar statement, and is sometimes referred to as a closing section. It's really little more than a repeated and varied two-measure cadence formula, faster moving because of its reliance on 16th note patterns reiterating the dominant tonic resolution over and over with abrupt dynamic shifts. But again, there is some relationship between the two ideas, with the right hand in particular relying largely on triadic motion, both ascending and descending, in the earlier measures, although still mixing in repeated stepwise scale fragments. The left hand seizes the initiative in the final measures with a flurry of quiet sixteenth notes against chords in the right hand. Here is the four bar opening phrase of the second subject again, this time going into the contrasting section and eventually into the first ending before the exposition is repeated. The development section begins by quoting the opening of the first subject, presented first in a minor key version. It soon becomes clear that it's the opening dotted sixteenth note motive that he's most keen on exploiting, moving it around between treble and bass clefs and hinting at different keys. This repeated motive soon shares the stage with repeated sixteenth-note motives initially functioning simply as harmonic support, but later taking on a more linear identity as in the closing section. The development section is, like the exposition, a brief one, and by the eighteenth measure it has settled down into a dominant chord on C sharp, with just a hint of the second subject thrown in at the last minute in preparation for the return of F-sharp major and the recapitulation. Here is the second ending of the exposition going into the development section. Since the recapitulation proceeds more or less normally, and there is no striking new coda section tacked on, we are going to move on to the second and last movement. And it's a rondo. No surprise for a finale, although this one has more than a few quirks, as we shall see. It's in F-sharp major again, 2-4 time, and marked Allegro Vivace. And it's a very clever and witty little movement. It begins with a rather quixotic refrain theme that starts forte with a dotted quarter note presenting a chromatic chord, another of those augmented sixth chords. This resolves to a dominant chord on a weak beat and then to an inverted dominant seventh chord on the next strong beat. And then, after a brief silence, we hear our first tonic chord, now piano, as it leads us into a sprightly little descending motive in sixths in the right hand. The left hand moving against it in contrary motion. This comes to a close after four bars on a dominant chord. Of course it all happens in a couple of blinks of the eye. The next four bar phrase is a variant of the first, the melodic shape and texture both modified a bit, this time ending on a subdominant chord. The third phrase, marked pianissimo initially, presents another variant, but this one propels us back to F-sharp with a solid cadence, cutting off after the first three measures to launch us into a new idea, based on a continuous series of two-note motives in sixteenth notes in the right hand, generally in ascending skips and leaps, against a series of eighth notes in the left hand the effect of which is a series of rapid chord changes as we crescendo up to forte. This new idea certainly sounds like a transition away from the refrain theme, introduced as it is with an emphatic cadence and presenting such a contrast in texture and momentum, but Rosen refers to it simply as the second theme in the tonic key, and in fact it doesn't move away from the original tonic key until right at the end. Where it quickly brings about a modulation to C sharp, the key of the dominant. So perhaps second theme in the tonic might be a better description even though it also serves as a transition to the first episode. The first episode is in the key of the dominant C sharp major and begins forte, although it gets progressively softer. It's also made up of a series of two note motives, but the effect is very different, because these two note motives generally ascend by half step and alternate between right hand and left hand, although the left hand stays within the same treble clef range as the right. All those ascending half step motives notwithstanding, we really don't move far from C sharp major, which of course makes the transition back to F sharp major for the second refrain an effortless one. These two thematic ideas, or three if you consider that first transitional passage that Rosen labeled as the second part of the refrain, these ideas constitute the main material of the movement. In most Rondo movements, we would expect to hear at least one more strongly contrasting episode squeezed in between the restatements of the refrain theme. We do hear further statements of the refrain theme, not all in the original key. But there are no more strongly contrasting episodes. That is not to say that the future episodes we encounter are simply carbon copies of the first. For example, after the second refrain, we hear an episode in the new key of A-sharp major, in which the texture is the same as it was in the first. That is, it makes use of two note motives tossed back and forth from hand to hand. But this time, the motion between the two notes is descending. And seven measures later, now in D-sharp major, we hear a second part of the same episode which reminds us of that first transition with its triadic motion in sixteenth notes in the right hand against eighth note movement in the left. And it delivers us to the same place it did when we first heard it, to another statement of the episode. Not in the same key, but once again with the two note motives showing ascending motion. Here's an excerpt showing the second episode with the descending melodic motion between the two note motives, going to the transitional passage, and from there to another episode in which the melodic motion between the two note motives goes back to be ascending, eventually returning to another statement of the refrain in the original tonic key. As we proceed through the movement, the refrain recurs with the transition following it, but that same transition passage, or a variant of it, also serves to break up two different recurrences of the episode. The first featuring two note motives with descending motion, the second, ascending motion. All of this results in a rondo form that is difficult to describe and certainly different from anything else we've heard to this point. There is a final varied presentation of the refrain theme, which passes into a brief coda which introduces some offbeats forzando accents, which is par for the course at this point, and develops other motives briefly before closing with a fortissimo flourish. Here is that final varied return of the refrain going into the brief coda, which focuses on the original dotted note rhythm, pauses first on a dominant seventh, and then an unexpected chromatic chord tonicizing the dominant 7th, a swirl up the dominant chord, and finally, after a few last-minute diversionary tactics, a final staccato cadence on tonic. mentioned earlier that Beethoven appeared to have considered this sonata underrated by the general public, or at least not adequately appreciated for its unique qualities. There's no question about the unique qualities, and the work has certainly inspired some champions over the decades but it probably remains true to this day that the work is one of his least appreciated sonatas from the middle period, or in this case, the end of the middle period. Sonata in G Major, Opus 79, was also completed in 1809, but it is of a somewhat different sort. Like Opus 78, it was commissioned by the great Italian pianist, composer, publisher, Muzio Clementi, and probably conceived as another work for Teresa, although not dedicated to her. Beethoven had directed his German publisher to label it as an easy sonata, or sonatina. This was, of course, not the first scaled-down sonata for piano labeled as a sonatina, and designed to be playable by young amateurs. The two much earlier works of Opus 49, Sonata's Numbers 19 and 20, both usually referred to as sonatinas fall into the same category, but are even more limited in their technical requirements. Before tackling Opus 79, we'll take a quick look at both of these earlier works, which are familiar to countless generations of young pianists. The second of these works, the Sonatina in G major, was composed first, probably completed in 1796. It's a perfectly proportioned miniature, hearkening back to simpler works by both Haydn and Mozart. The first movement, in cut time and marked Allegro troppo, immediately introduces the first subject, which begins with a straightforward triplet-based arpeggiation of the tonic chord. The first thematic idea is eight bars long, the second four-bar phrase virtually a repeat of the first an octave higher. The second thematic idea, introducing more active scale-wise movement in eighth notes and which serves as something of a tag, is also four bars long, ending again on the tonic. But the modulatory transition that follows incorporates this same phrase, now down an octave, modifying it just enough to send us off in the direction of D major with a new, more robust theme triplet-based again, both in the right-hand melody and the left-hand arpeggiated accompaniment, or at least leaning toward D major, since Beethoven keeps tossing around dominant seventh chords in the original key, almost as if he wasn't sure he really wanted to leave it behind. But eventually, we do arrive securely enough in the new key of D major. Here is an excerpt taking us that far. The second subject contrasts nicely with the first, starting with three repeated pickup notes on the fifth scale degree of the new key, followed by the ascending leap of a fourth and an undulating ascent after that. This theme unfolds in two measure phrases, the second a repeat of the first a step higher over a broken chord accompaniment in the left hand, but still in the treble clef range, which implies an effective countermelody in the process. We then hear a new contrasting idea, also two bars long and also beginning with three pickup notes, but this one moving down by step with a distinctive articulation pattern and some effective non-harmonic tones. The last two bars introduce a new gently syncopated figure and an undulating scale line, which leads us to a repeat of the entire eight measure theme. This is followed by a brief closing section. We're back to triplet eighth notes at this point, which alternate with repeated quarter notes and scale lines, and with a last reference to the descending arpeggios of the first theme, before bringing the exposition to a close. Here is an excerpt from the introduction of the second theme to the end of the exposition. The development section is brief, as you would expect in a sonatina, but it is by no means guileless. Beginning on a D minor chord, it moves quickly toward A minor and later to E minor. There are clear references to both the first subject and the second, and both are now revealed to be less naive than they originally appeared. The second movement, also in G major, is a gentle minuet. I'm only going to play the opening measures. The first sonatina of Op. 49 is in G minor. The first movement in 2-4 time and marked andante was probably completed in 1797, a year after the second sonatina. The minor key may inject a little greater sense of depth here, and there's a little more complex contrapuntal activity in places. The first subject is a reasonably weighty one, but the second in the relative major is much more frothy. But in the recapitulation, where the second subject returns in the original key of G minor, the effect is really quite intense. But I'll play only the exposition here. The second movement is a frolicsome rondo in G major with some clever little minor key episodes. But we're going to move on now to the more ambitious Sonata in G major, number 25, Opus 79 from 1809, nicknamed the Cuckoo for its use of falling thirds. The first movement in 3-4 time and marked Presto alla Tedesca meant presumably to suggest a German Landler from the 18th century although few of those would be marked as presto. It's Haydn-inspired, as Rosen points out, and not the first German dance that Beethoven composed, although perhaps among the most vigorous. We expect to hear a sonata form for the first movement of a piano sonata, and the form here does bear a resemblance to the traditional sonata form in many ways. But it really doesn't have the feel of a sonata, mostly because it lacks the usually clear-cut thematic contrast from first theme to second theme, and the flow between them is all but continuous. The opening four measures present the most distinctive thematic component of the movement, as the right hand bounds up the tonic triad with staccato quarter notes and the rest of the phrase works its way down a sixth. The melodic shape heard in measures two and three is heard again down a step, starting on b three of measure three, but the melodic activity slows for the last three bars of the theme as the melody outlines a dominant seventh chord in preparation for the tonic chord ending the phrase. The level of rhythmic activity then reverts back to a flow of eighth notes and we hear a little cadential tag which closes on the dominant chord. And, as you'll hear in a minute, the left hand presents a typical accompaniment pattern, especially for a sonatina, broken chords with the lower notes of the chord played in thirds on the downbeat with the remaining chord tone added on the offbeat. The tonic note remains as the lowest in the pattern, repeated for the entire eight bars of the first theme, even as it acts as a pedal tone under a dominant seventh chord in measures six and seven. Here is the first 8-bar theme and the four-measure tag, which comes to a stop on the dominant. And since it's presto, it goes by very quickly. The modulatory transition comes next, with the texture reduced to a single line and flying by with a series of eighth notes originally extending the dominant chord of D major with a series of arpeggios, but then introducing other chords related to the new key, including a dominant 7th chord on E major, which turns out to be the dominant of A major, which is of course the dominant chord in D major, our ultimate goal. But this again all happens very quickly, and before we know it, we're in the new key and have eased our way into the second theme. The texture is a little fuller here, the right hand mostly moving in thirds, but it lacks the distinctive contour of the first theme, and although the flow of eighth notes, originally restricted to the left hand but eventually moving to the right when the parts switch, that flow is now scale-wise rather than based on triadic arpeggios. Nevertheless, it would still be difficult to call this a strongly contrasting second theme, In fact, it all seems relatively seamless. Here's the transition flowing into the second subject, and then after that into a brief closing section, introducing some new accented chromatic chords, and an even briefer codetta, which references the opening bars of the first theme, and then on to the repeat of the exposition. The development section begins by quoting the first theme in E major, but like most development sections, it doesn't remain there very long, moving first to C major and then C minor, and then E flat major among others. Since the basic material is relatively simple and repetitive, these sometimes unexpected key changes make an even greater impact than usual. Most of the motivic ideas are drawn from the first subject and Beethoven's predilection for repeated descending minor thirds at this point is what gives the sonata its unfortunate cuckoo nickname. But as we approach the recapitulation, the second theme does make a brief appearance. We'll hear a little of the development section, a fairly lengthy one, at least compared to the exposition. After the development section and recapitulation are repeated, we encounter a quirky little coda where the first theme is split between the left hand and the right. The entire movement is a high-spirited romp and the short coda adds to that a bit of a rustic quality with the addition of a few ashakatura, crush notes, where the grace note is struck simultaneously with the main note giving a wrong note quality and summoning up the more casual approach of a village band. Here is the brief coda, which trails off delicately. Some sonata slow movement we've encountered have displayed distinctive emotive qualities, but you really wouldn't expect that in a sonatina or student piece. But if not an emotionally tinged movement, this one is certainly not without a languid expressivity. It's in G minor, 9 8 time, marked espressivo, and often described as in Italian barcarolle style because of its time signature, lilt, and frequent use of parallel thirds and sixths. It begins piano but features crescendos and decrescendos twice within the first four measures. It unfolds primarily in two measure phrases initially, moving from the tonic note of G up to the fifth scale degree, hovering there with a pair of repeated notes as it dwells on the tonic chord and then descending down a tonic triad before coming to rest on the second scale degree harmonized by the first dominant chord the next two bars are a varied repeat of the first two here are the first four bars ending with a modulation to the relative major key of b flat The next phrase, a bit more rhythmically active and reaching up a little higher, unfolds in much the same manner, although this time moving from B-flat back to G-minor, after briefly hinting at C-minor. It's followed by another two-measure phrase, again a varied repeat, this time taking us back to G-minor. This is followed by a tacked-on measure that moves us in the direction of E-flat major, where we hear a contrasting middle section in the new key. Here the duet texture associated with the Barcarolle style is temporarily abandoned in favor of an elegant, mostly single-line melody in the right hand, one which moves up the new tonic triad in leisurely fashion before balancing that motion with a pair of descending lines, sequentially related. As we proceed, the right hand becomes more florid, swelling up with sixteenth note ascending surges, peaking with a trill, and finishing with a tonic arpeggio. That same idea then appears an octave higher before the melody comes to rest on a series of more leisurely triadic arpeggios. But we're not yet finished with the faster moving right hand scale passages which peak just a couple of measures before the middle section comes to an end, with a final phrase rearticulating the tonic chord. Meanwhile, the left-hand accompaniment pattern is also much more active, swirling up and down mostly tonic and dominant 7th chords in 16th notes. Here is the entire middle section, which crescendos and diminuendos multiple times within its 11 measures. As you heard right at the end of my excerpt, we quiet and then pivot with the help of another of those augmented 6th chords back to the dominant 7th in G minor, which naturally resolves to the original tonic in G minor, as the first section returns in abbreviated form. It's a lovely movement, not particularly complex, few if any harmonic surprises, and a melody not atypical of its genre but its simplicity and lack of serious technical challenges don't disqualify it from being a gem of a slow movement. The finale G major 2-4 time marked vivace and dolce, not the most common of combinations. It's a rondo and begins with a perky little tune based largely on a repeated rhythmic motive, an eighth note followed by two sixteenths, heard three times in just the first two measures. It's given various melodic shapes as we proceed through the opening refrain, although the sixteenths, moving to an upper neighbor and then back down again, is the most common. Here is that motive as heard in the first two bars, starting on the third scale degree in the key. That motive is heard at least once in seven of eight measures in the first part of the refrain originally circling around the third scale degree, but thereafter establishing an ascending pattern, which then reverses course in the last two bars to end on D, harmonized by a dominant chord. The harmony is straightforward and diatonic, but the descending bass line in the left hand, doubled by thirds, provides a strong countermelody beneath the almost constant repetitions of the original motive. Here are the first eight bars with the repeat. The next eight bars provide a fairly serious contrast. The dynamic level has shifted up to forte, at least for the first four bars. Some staccato markings are in evidence. At one point, the left hand doubles the right down two octaves, and a new melodic element is encountered, a descending octave leap. All of this in the first four measures. It's enough to make most listeners initially think of this passage as a transition to the first episode. But the dynamics drop back down to piano for the last four bars, and we zip through the circle of fifths in a quick series of secondary dominant chords, which actually land us right back in G major. So this is clearly not a transition in the sense that it delivers us to a new key for the first episode. Here's the second eight bars with repeat. Regardless of how we label the passage that brought us here, the fact is that we now find ourselves in the first episode. It's not brand new. In fact, it begins by quoting that opening measure motive again. But it is different. For one thing, it's in a new key, E minor, although that isn't crystal clear at first. The left-hand accompaniment is certainly thicker and busier than in the refrain theme, and once again we revert to more doubling in octaves between right and left hands, halfway through the section. We hear a solid enough cadence on the dominant in E minor in the eighth bar, but then the texture thins down dramatically, and we're back to single line exchanges between right and left hands, based on that familiar first measure motive again. After four bars of this, the left hand drops out, but the right continues, repeating that familiar motive, growing softer as it goes, and implying, rather at the last second, a modulation back to G major for the first return of the refrain. Here is the first episode passing into the retransition section that will return us to G major and the return of the refrain. The refrain as it returns is a little different. The left-hand accompaniment is a bit more active, now spelling out the chords in triplet arpeggios. There's no repeat of the first eight bars. We move right on to the second part of the refrain. But we are going to move on now to the next new passage, which is the second episode. It's in C major, not an unusual key for an episode, and it is very simple, opening with an ascending scale line and proceeding to an eight-measure theme, not a terribly inspiring one, which consists initially of little more than staccato eighth note arpeggiations, first of the new tonic chord and then of the subdominant chord, with another ascending scale line to separate them. It may be a little on the generic side, but it is robust, accompanied by repeated block chords and certainly a sharp contrast to what has come before. Here's the first 8 bars. Those 8 bars are then given a varied repetition with the staccato 8th notes now replaced by 16th notes. Giving an even more lively effect. Given the conventions of rondo form, we would now expect a retransition back to the refrain theme, probably in the original tonic key of G major. What we get is sort of like that, in the sense that, in the fairly short space of five measures, The passage does bring about a modulation to G major. But it does so not by employing any new thematic idea, as you might expect, but by employing the original measure one motive over triplet-based arpeggios in the left hand. We hear it first in C major, starting on the third scale degree in that key again, and then repeated again a third lower, harmonized as if we're heading toward A minor. But at the last minute, shifting to G major. Here is that very short retransition taking us back to the refrain using some elements from the refrain in the process. And as you may have noticed, the result of this little retransition is an almost seamless return of the original refrain. Will this version of the refrain be the same as the first or second? Actually, neither. The first eight bars repeats the theme note for note in the right hand with the left hand using the sixteenth note version of the arpeggiated harmonies. The second eight bars offers an interesting little variant. The left hand plows ahead as before, but the right hand introduces a series of eighth note triplets each jumping up an octave, with the first note of each now omitted, resulting in a quirky sort of syncopation. Then we hear the second part of the refrain, in octaves again, well, the first four measures of the second part, and those four bars are interrupted by a two-measure insertion. It's actually based on bar five of the second part, but it's still heard as an interruption, squeezed in at this point. Beethoven never finishes the whole of the second part of the refrain, although he's not through yet with playing with the staccato motives from the first four bars, bouncing them from octave to octave as we find ourselves flowing into a brief coda, one that brings back just about all of the main thematic ideas we've heard while hinting at some of the keys we've heard along the way. We crescendo up to the last two measures, but we conclude softly. So in the end, this is a round of form in which Beethoven takes a few liberties. Nothing shocking or revolutionary here, simply clever little twists to make the work seem more playful to younger pianists. Here's an excerpt beginning with the final version of the refrain, passing on to the coda and the conclusion of the movement. so when we think of beethoven's sonatinas here from the earlier ones of opus 49 to the more mature examples of opus 78 and opus 79 it's easy to see that we are not confronted with beethoven's greatest or most profound masterpieces but we are certainly dealing with works of great charm and wit all wrapped up in a package which for the most part can be opened and enjoyed by talented amateurs For our next episode, we'll turn back the clock a little to talk about Beethoven's only completed opera, titled Leonora in its earlier versions and Fidelio in its final version. And we'll do it over two episodes, the first dealing just with the overtures composed for the opera.